Well, guys, we are going to be spending time this morning. This is our second Sunday in the book of Colossians. Last week, we dove in, and we're working our way through the book of Colossians. Last week, we got in the first chapter up through verse 14, and this morning, we're going to pick it up in verse 15. And I've lived 45 years on planet Earth. I'm kind of at that weird age where when I say I'm 45, some of you go, I didn't know he was that young. And others of you guys go, I didn't know he was that old. Some of you are like, no, he looks 45. (laughs) I'm 45, and I've had some great years on planet Earth. But I will say this, looking back over the span of those years, the worst year I've had was my 37th. I won't go into all the details right now um, because it would take a while and it would be completely about me. But I'll just say this, my 37th year was hard. It was very tough. It was full of tears and sleepless nights. And in the middle of that year, my wife, I think I've shared with you before, she talked to family and friends and got money for me to go to a conference. And I needed to get away in the worst way. I didn't even know. But I went to this conference. It was down in Orlando, Florida. I was living in Florida at the time. But I got in my Ford, whatever it was, it's dead now, it died shortly after this trip, <laughs> and I drove down to Orlando and uh, walked inside and got checked into my room, and then I went down, I was late for the first session, and I walked into a room filled with 6,000 men singing all creatures of our God and King. And guys, I don't even know, this is very unusual for me. But I just broke down crying. I wept like a baby. Those voices were harmonizing and rising together and were proclaiming in unified declaration some truths about Jesus. And I just broke. <laughs> I was just weeping, crying. And I, afterwards in my room, I was like trying to like psychoanalyze myself. <laughs> like, what was that about? That's so unusual for me. I'm not really a crier like that. And I still maybe don't understand it fully, but there was something incredibly... Guys, if I was trying to put my finger on what the feeling was, the closest I could come was homesickness. I felt something very close to homesickness when I heard that. And I thought about the God they were singing about and the unified embrace of those truths coming out of all the brokenness and the disagreement and the wrongness that was part of that 37th year of my life to walk into a room where a bunch of guys just simply, full-throatedly embrace the truth that Jesus was king. I just loved it and never wanted to go back. (laughs) I was homesick, and I wanted to go home. And I think there is something really precious going on in our verses for this morning. It's hidden from us in our English Bible translations today, But it's fairly obvious to people who are studiers of this ancient text that verses 15 through 20 are the lyrics to a forgotten hymn. 
one of the earliest hymns in the church. Who knows who wrote it? Some people have speculated Paul himself wrote it. But whether that's true or not doesn't matter. Paul embraced the message of this hymn, and it is a hymn written about who Jesus is. And uh, I just, in studying these words this week, I just uh, felt in my study that rising feeling that I felt in my 37th year of kind of a homesickness where I want to go home. I want Jesus to come and take me to that place he's prepared for me. And I look forward to that day. But we're going to read these words. Um, Verses 15 through 20 are either a fragment or the whole lyrics to a, a hymn from the first century church. And then we're also going to read verses 21 through 23. And then I have just a few thoughts this morning to share as we, that we could, again, like a lot of these times, there's a lot we could take out of here, but I ask God just to direct my attention to maybe one small part of it that might be needed this morning. So let's do this. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent." For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And now he transitions from talking about Jesus to talking to the people that he's writing the letter to. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Uh, Somebody recently told me that they thought in my sermons I used words that were too big. (laughs) I have some very honest family members. (laughs) And they said, you kind of come across like you're trying to make yourself seem smarter than you are or something like that. Guys, I'm very dumb. I just want to be very clear about that. If I've misled you in any way, I'm actually kind of an idiot. Uh, And I do try to hide it maybe with big words, but I'm going to share with you a big word right now. I just want you to know I'm not trying, okay? It's effortless with me. Christology. Now, that might not be a new word for some of you, but for some of you it might be. Christology. It's a word that I encountered in seminary and nowhere else. It's a $5 term that means the study or the understanding of Jesus. Who is he? What is his nature? Is he human? Is he God? Is he somehow both at the same time? If he's both, did he become less of either when he put that together? How would that work? Is he the creator? Or can it be said that he is somehow part of creation? 
And if so, how could the Creator be part of His creation? How does He relate to God the Father and the Holy Spirit? What role does He play in salvation? Christology tries to bring answers and understanding to these kinds of questions that surround the person, the nature, and the work of Jesus. That's the big $5 term, Christology. Anthropology, on the other hand, is a store. No, just kidding. That doesn't work in the county because you guys don't have anthropologies up here, do you? <laughs> yeah, some jokes don't work anyway, anywhere. Anthropology, on the other hand, at least within the Christian tradition, there's a social science of anthropology, but in the Christian tradition, anthropology is the study or understanding of who man is. And really our interest is, is who man is in relationship to God. What is our nature? What does it mean when the Bible says that we're made in the image of God? What is God in relationship to us, and how do we relate to the rest of creation? We're not gods, but we're also not dogs. What are we exactly? What makes us human and uniquely so? And anthropology within the Christian tradition seeks to arrive at a fully formed doctrine or understanding of who we are. Now, in these verses, 15 through 23, what Paul does is he lays out a very clear, strong, forceful Christology. In taking the words of a hymn and just putting them right into the body of his letter to the Colossian church, he is going to lay out a very clear picture for them of who Jesus is. And then in verse 21, he transitions out of Christology into anthropology. And he says, now that's who Jesus is. Now let's talk about you. Let's talk about humanity. And we need to put these two things together because it's significant for us. The two questions here in these verses are, who is Jesus and who are you in relationship to him? First, let's quickly go through, or I say quickly, but you know me. Okay, first, what do these verses tell us about Jesus? The first thing that Paul, in a very clear, unambiguous way, lays out for us regarding Jesus, who he is, his nature, he is God. He is God. He is Lord of all. He is supreme and preeminent. We see this in verses 15, 18, 19, and really throughout. Paul, this is just saturated with proof that Jesus is God. Before Abraham ever was, I am, was Jesus' testimony about himself. He is the preexistent, eternal creator God of the universe. That is who Jesus is. And yes, he is the creator, and he is the sustainer of the universe, I think in, in one way, we could define creation most broadly as everything that isn't God. There's God, and then there's creation. It does get a little muddy in a moment. We're going to talk about the incarnation. Jesus, uh, Paul will get there too. That's another $5 word. I'm just showing off a lot this morning. But for right now, 
Paul says he is God and he is the creator. More than just creator, he's the sustainer. And like the agnostics held that there may be such a thing as God and maybe he created the universe, but he's not intimately involved in it. But Paul is going to say here very clearly, yes, he created the world and he's holding it all together. He's the sustainer of the world as well. All that exists was made by him and through him and for him. He's the origin of all created things and the object or the goal of creation. He's the sustaining power that holds it all together. He is Lord over his creation, both in the natural world that can be seen and the unseen realm of angels and demons. He is Lord over all humanity and the world that we inhabit. There is no thing. There is no creature, there is no place that exists outside of his knowledge and his sovereign lordship. We see this most clearly in verses 16 through 17. Something else to know about this Jesus from this now extinct hymn. He is the head of the church. He is Lord over his unique people, the church. Now, before I said that creation most broadly defined is everything that's not God, but here's something else we need to know about Jesus and that Paul, even though it's confusing and hard to wrap our minds around, it's here in this hymn. Although he is the creator, nevertheless, he took on flesh, not by a work of creation, he himself was never created, but rather through incarnation Jesus moved himself into the world that he created. He who has no beginning came into the world and became like one of us. And Paul says he is preeminent, the firstborn. By saying he's firstborn, he's not saying that he has a beginning. There he's using the language of rank. He is first among all things made of flesh. (laughs) He is Lord over creation. He is preeminent and the firstborn of all creation. In taking on flesh, Jesus made the invisible God fully visible to the naked eyes of human beings. So seeing Jesus and understanding who he is means... Seeing and understanding God. God is spirit. But Jesus, in taking on flesh, all the fullness of God dwelled in a man that we could see and study and understand. Something else here in this song is he reconciled us to himself and brought us peace by his sacrifice on the cross. Uh, If you are new to Christianity, I don't want you to miss this really big, important part about what we believe, which is that we are saved because of what Jesus did for us, not our own goodness. Uh, If you've been warming a pew for a long time, you're probably zoning me out because he's doing his gospel presentation again, and that's okay. Take a little nap. I'll wake you up in a minute. <laughs> but if you're, if you're totally new, this is probably the most important thing to hear in this entire message, which is that Jesus, why did he do all that? Why did he move himself into the creation? Why did he become a man 
like us. He put on flesh so that he could wear that flesh all the way to the cross. He willingly allowed wicked human beings to nail him to a cross on trumped-up charges so that there all of God's wrath could be poured out on him in your place. Jesus' death on the cross was done as a substitutionary sacrifice for me, for you. Guys, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's me, that's you. We have all sinned. If we look into the Bible and we see all the commands that are there, the commands to do good things that we have failed to do, if not entirely, then on many occasions. And we see commands there not to do wicked things that we have surely done many, many, many times. And not only that, but the wages of sin, what we deserve, what we've earned for breaking those laws or for failing to keep the laws, is death. God's wrath, His judgment, His punishment, we are all deserving of that. But God, who is rich in mercy and grace, sent His only Son, Jesus, into the world so that all of that wrath might be poured out on him who is perfectly sinless, so that we who put our trust in Jesus might by faith receive his reward. Guys, this is the gospel. I pray often for unsaved people in my own life that God would destroy any false ideas that they have about the way of salvation or about who God is. There are many false ideas that people have. And I think probably the most prominent one is that God will grant admittance into his favor in eternity based on how good a person you were in this life. I think a lot of people are walking around under the misapprehension that that's how God works. That if you are a good person, that is, you are relatively not as bad as others that he will see merit and value in you and give you the gift of heaven. Now, that is not what God has said in his Bible, in his word. That is a false idea, that many people are walking around under the belief that that's true. I'm firmly convinced, I live here in the county with the rest of you, there are some amazingly wonderful good people up here, at least compared to other specimens of humanity, perhaps. I sit with them in meetings. I talk to them at the store, and I'm convinced of their goodness, relatively. Their problem isn't their badness, it's their goodness that isn't good enough. You see, in order for, to be saved, you must be perfect. That's what the Bible says. We see this, I think, very pointedly in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Golly, that's impossible. And that's the point. It sure is. None of us are perfect in that way. We're all sinners. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus, in coming to the world, motivated by love, that's his motive. Why did he do it? He loves you. He is love. He came and he died in our place so that we might be reconciled to God. 
He brought us peace by his sacrifice on the cross. Paul wants people to know this. Very important to know and understand. One other thing before we move on, one other tidbit that Paul includes in this hymn about Jesus, and maybe there's more. These are just what I came up with this week in my study, is he was resurrected. Uh, This is a very important truth uh, for all of Christianity's truth claims are built leaning against this truth. If you can prove that Jesus was not resurrected, guys, what are we even doing here? If he was resurrected, what is anybody doing out there? <laughs> right? It's just that simple. If it happened, all of the truth claims of Christianity are true, vindicated. And if it didn't, Paul says, we of all people are most to be pitied. But I believe there are many proofs for it happening. And Paul here says he was resurrected from the dead and he will be Lord in eternity, verse 18. So in there, I see that Jesus is Lord over creation. He is Lord over his church. He is Lord over salvation. And he will be Lord in eternity. This is a song about the lordship, the supreme excellence of Jesus. And now with this incredible vision of who Jesus is in the minds of us and his Colossian readers in the first century, he then transitions to talk about anthropology. Now, in light of those truths, let's talk about you guys. First of all, what we see in verses 21 through 23, it's a point I've made many times before, but there are in Paul's world, in the in the view of man envisioned in the Bible, there are two kinds of human beings. Two. That's it. There are those who are in Christ and those who are outside. And here's what he says about humanity living apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we are alienated from God. That is, cut off estranged. We exist outside of God's favor. Apart from Christ, humanity is hostile in mind. That is, humanity is not sad about being alienated from God, but rather feels threatened by God's claims to lordship, bristles at talk of sin and righteousness, and sees in God a threat to our love affair our con- with the world, our control over our own lives, and our own self-serving existence, our own agenda. Mankind is hostile in mind towards God and His truth claims. And, Paul says, apart from Christ, human beings are doers of evil. There you go. That's pretty dark. That's pretty bleak. <laughs> says you're alienated, you're hostile in mind, and you do, th- you do bad things. You sin. In Christ, he says, this is the other category that into which some human beings fall, are those who are in Christ, humanity can be reconciled to God. 
And in Christ, humanity can be presented, please mark that word presented, holy, blameless, and above reproach. I draw your attention to that word presented because Paul is not saying that there is a quality difference in the human beings in these two categories. He's not saying Christians are a higher, better, more excellent and worthy kind of human being than those in the first category I described. He is not saying that Christians are a holy people or a blameless people or that they live in a way that's above reproach. He says they're presented that way to the Father. That's a, that's a thing worth noting here. Guys, I believe in the sincerity of your walk. Many of you, I've come to know you, we're great friends. We've been living together here in church community. And I know you like you know me. And we're deeply imperfect. But I know many of you who are very sincere and wanting to become more and more like Jesus. That truly is your heart's desire. You're trying uh, we've talked many times in my office or at your house or wherever through tears about failings and victories, and I get it. I'm not saying here that none of us should can be concerned, not concerned about pursuing personal righteousness. We're all trying to become holy as God is holy. We're trying to become more and more like the God who saved us. We are lovers of righteousness. And that's all very important, and it's an important proof of our salvation that we um, are pursuing Christ-likeness personally. But I just want you to see that at least here, when Paul is describing these two groups, he says that the second group, by putting their faith in Jesus, is presented holy. That is, Jesus' holiness is credited to your account just as your sin was attached to him on the cross. When you walk into the bank... You're carrying Jesus' check. You're clothed in His righteousness. All of His holiness, all of His blamelessness, all of His above reproachedness. That's not a word, but there you go. That's yours. And you're presented to God in that way. This is a precious truth that we cling to. And it has a powerful way of shaping our community. Because when we look at one another, we're not a bunch of people who say, I'm holy. Why don't you do that too? <laughs> no, if we sin and fall down and mess up, we are always reminded of the fact that we have nothing to brag about except Jesus. I'm a fellow struggler too. I blow it too. I mess up too. And I also love righteousness and I'm trying with you. Guys, we're a bunch of traveling companions and we're just stumbling our way home to God, leaning against each other, reminding each other of wonderful truths. And because we are a people shaped by the gospel truth that Jesus was perfect and that is our whole hope, we extend grace to one another in all of our frailty, don't we? Or at least we ought to. And I, that's been what I've experienced here among you, I would say. Now, that's who God is. Christology. Jesus. That's who man is. Anthropology. 
We're either alienated or we're reconciled. We're either presented holy or we're workers of evil deeds. The difference between these two kinds of humanity is the gospel. To come to a, the knowledge and understanding of the gospel and to embrace it. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Last week in our study of verses 1 through 14, our big takeaway from that morning is that there is a knowledge that leads to transformation. Paul begins his letter by giving thanks for what he's heard about the Colossian Christians. He never actually visited this church, but he's heard that they have heard with their ears the truth of the gospel, and they've understood it in their hearts and embraced it. And that has gone on to work, uh, do a work of transformation in their lives. It's bearing fruit. And then he says in his prayer that they would um, be filled with the knowledge of God. He prays that they would grow in the knowledge of God. Actually, that they would be filled with the knowledge of His will, and that they would grow in the knowledge of God. And then all of this would have the effect that they would live lives that are worthy of God, they'd be pleasing to Him in every way, that they'd bear fruit in every good work. In other words, knowledge leads to transformation. And then Paul, after the tail end of that prayer, launches into this full Christology. And I think the question we should ask is what does the knowledge of these things do in the way we live? Yeah, it's one thing to know that Jesus is God and He's the Creator and He's awesome and He's powerful and everything that exists was made by the power of His will and that He's Lord over all things seen and unseen. Yeah, 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 those are all great thoughts that's high, that's inspiring, but what difference does it make in the gritty reality of your life this week? You can embrace all those things as true, but how does it then transform us? How might we live the truth of what we just heard? Well, uh, I think just one of those things that we come back to again and again here at State Road is that we are all becoming what we worship. Whether you like it or not, it is just true. We're all becoming what we worship. And so Hebrews 12.2 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Oh, let's see him. Let's see him. Because if we're going to become what we worship, let's worship Jesus rightly. Let's see him and understand him truly. Psalm 15, 4 through 8 says this, speaking about those who worship idols, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, 
so do all who trust in them. Guys, I want so badly (laughs) for State Road, and I want this mostly for selfish reasons, kind of, that's a bad way to put it. I want this to be a warm, sincere corner of the kingdom where Jesus is made visible and lived out, mostly because I don't want to live in a nasty place. (laughs) And I want Jesus to be glorified here. I want others to be drawn into the truth of the gospel here. And I want them to see it lived out in sincerity and that they would join us in becoming a follower of Jesus and be blessed and helped here. And so every once in a while, guys, we have to look at this guy, Jesus, and understand him for who he is, that he might be glorified here in the midst. There is a difference, though, in becoming like God in character and in essence. I say we're all becoming what we worship. Uh, We can't fall into the error of saying we're going to become powerful like Jesus was powerful, or that we will become preeminent as Jesus was preeminent. Um, Not to poke fun at another religion. I'm not poking fun, but not to use them as a... Anyway, shouldn't talk. (laughs) Mormonism, guys, has a lot of error in Mormonism. It's not a Christian religion, but it has many of the trappings of Christianity. One of the things about Mormonism that is definitely separate, one of the many things that's separate and distinct from Christianity is that Mormons have as their goal to become divine. Uh, they, in their scheme, they are God-makers. They are going to progress to the point where they will become divine themselves. They'll be Lord over a world themselves. They've really confused becoming like God in divine essence with becoming like God in character. Um, They've taken the lie of Satan in the garden, you will not die, you will become like God, and they've built a whole religion around that. Becoming like God in divine essence is the goal. Fellow Christian, we will never be like God in that way. We are sheep, and He is the shepherd, and we will never become shepherd-like but we can become like him in character. And whenever the Bible says for us to become imitators of Jesus, it is calling us to be an imitator of his character. John 17, be one as Jesus and the Father are one. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Romans 15, 7, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. Colossians 3.13, Ephesians 4.32, forgive as Christ forgave you. John 13.15, serve as Christ served. 1 Peter 2.21, suffer as Christ suffered. John 20.21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. All of those are invitations to share not in the divine nature of God, but in His divine character. To love to serve, to welcome, to forgive, to embrace suffering, and to live on mission. And I think all of these things are here at the front, uh, front of mind when I read these descriptions of Jesus. Why did he move himself into creation? 
because he's a God who's on mission. He's a God who saves. He's a God who forgives. He's a God who welcomes us. He's a God who comes to us. Well, what, what transformational effect does that have on his church? We're all becoming what we worship. What we revere in the end, we will resemble, says G.K. Beale. So if we worship a God who goes out to the nations with love and grace and forgiveness and welcome, we will by degrees become like him. Jesus said in Luke twenty two twenty six, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. I think for me personally, the biggest takeaway when I look at what Jesus, how Jesus is described here, God, the creator of the world, God first, preeminent, excellent, high above all things, master of all, laid in a feeding trough, born to two poor Jewish teenagers. The humility of our Jesus is a rebuke to the pride of this fallen world and to the pride that is always threatening to grow in me. Jesus, with all of his divine privileges and power and station, set it all aside, considering equality with God not a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, in the words of Philippians 2. When I look at that reality, I, and I look at myself, when I switch from Christology to anthropology, guys, I'm very dissatisfied with my own progress. And I want to become more like my God. I want our church to become more like the Jesus that we worship. And we need to see the awesome humility of a Jesus, King of all, who would come to us in the way that he did, and to live that out in these days, in this place, among one another here in this church. Jesus' example for us consists basically in this. He laid aside all his divine privileges and lowered himself. Our eternal, pre-existent creator God became like one of us. He became a son so that we might become sons of God. He came into the world so that we might be delivered out of it. He bore our sins so that we might be clothed in his righteousness. And as he says in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the Jesus we worship. Now let's try and become more like him in his power by the inner working of the Holy Spirit. I pray these words from God's word would do their work in each of our hearts. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for confronting me this week. Thank you for confronting us this week, God, with this awesome vision of who Jesus is. And God, you have called us to be imitators of him. That's what it is to be a disciple, a sincere from the heart imitator of Jesus' example. And so, God, I pray that you would take these words and that you would grow them in our hearts. God, that you would make us more and more like Jesus in order that we might make him visible in these days and in this place.
God, we just only ever always want to be associated with Jesus. We're happy to bear the scorn and ridicule that might come with that. And God, we are so looking forward to the day when we will enter into the reward that comes with being associated with him. Father, we know in your word that you have called us to take up our cross and follow him. And we know also that the day is coming where we will set our cross down and trade it in for a crown. But God, in the midst of these days, I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with a rich humility as a people. God, give us that humility that was in Jesus. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live out these days on mission. Give us a heart of love and grace and forgiveness. Give us a welcoming heart towards those who are far off. Not a welcoming act. God, don't give us a welcoming act. Give us a welcoming heart. And God, I pray that you would bring many who are far off into the warmth of relationship with you, that many would find their way home through our fellowship here at State Road. Father, we ask you to do this here among us. Prosper us in righteousness and in Christ-likeness. Grow us in the knowledge of who Jesus is. And by the Holy Spirit, God, I pray that that would have a powerfully transforming effect on who we are, both individually and as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.